If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The 14th century was an era of high drama in England. Society was shaken by the toppling of two kings, the Hundred Years' War, the Black Death and the Peasants' Revolt. But this was also an age that saw a rise in the merchant class, as well as growing ideas about nationalism, courtly love and chivalry. In the newest instalment of her Medieval Queens series, the best-selling historical author Alison Weir charts the lives and legacies of five 14th century queen consorts. Marguerite of France, Philippa of Hainault, Isabella of France, Anne of Bohemia and Isabella of Valois. Emily Briffitt spoke to her to find out how their stories fit into the dramatic backdrop of the Age of Chivalry. So, in your new book, Queens of the Age of Chivalry, you chart the lives of five 14th century queen consorts. And we're definitely going to be returning to their stories more specifically in a moment. But just to start us off, I was wondering if you could introduce us to what life for a medieval queen, a medieval queen consort would have been like at this time. What would perhaps strike us most today? I think that the, the fact that they were required to be subservient to their husbands would strike us most today. Uh, a medieval queen was meant to be the mirror of the Virgin Mary. She was meant to be virtuous, decorative, fruitful, um, charitable, and to show the gentler face of monarchy. The century we're looking at today is between 1299 and 1399. So did it change at all in that time? Most queens during that period conformed to that ideal um, in varying degrees. We can't really count Isabella of Valois, who was only six when she became Queen of England um, and, and, and was only queen consort for about three years. But we, but there is there is one example, Isabella of France. Do we call her the she-wolf or England's saviour? Because she actually led an invasion of England with the aim of deposing her husband, Edward II. It was so way beyond the medieval ideal of queenship that it, people thought it was quite startling. 
Would you say that maybe the ideals of what it was to be a queen actually directly affected these women's lives? I would, yes, I think these ideals, they did, but I think this is what they accepted. It's how they, you know, how they saw their lives. They didn't chafe against the bonds. Isabella probably did, but she had good reason, and that, that was more direct reason. But no, no, they just accepted it as we accept the equality. They accepted that they, they, they were inferior sex. They were infants in law. It's horrifying to us, but it wasn't to them. And this is just before the time when the debate about um, women's autonomy began. That's in the late 14th century with Christine de Pizan. And, you know, looking forward to an age of virtue where women would have more autonomy and also be be considered as equals with men. Took hundreds of years for the idea to be accepted, but it did did happen. It happened in France, it happened in Italy. This is such an age that saw high drama, toppling of kings, the Hundred Years' War, the Black Death, the Peasants' Revolts. And there's loads of other sort of socio-cultural changes in that time as well. How does such a time of such drama affect people in power and the people who are next to the people in power? It, it, it affects them in different ways, of course. I mean, the Black Death, for example, it touched the royal family just as it touched many, many families all down the social spectrum. And uh, you look at the, the Peasants' Revolt. Uh, there wasn't a queen at that time, so my book really doesn't touch on that for very long. Um, but, what, but it had an indirect effect because Richard II was very young at the time the Peasants' Revolt was 14, and the role he played gave him a rather inflated ideal, uh, idea of himself it made him very egotistical and of course that could have a a knock-on effect later on but he made two very happy marriages we said we'd come back to it we said we were going to talk about these women's lives so i'd like to have a little bit of a fact file history of these women so i think we should start probably at the start where your book starts uh with marguerite of france who was the second queen of edward i so could you tell us a little bit about who she was and her life she was the daughter of Philip III, King of France, and her marriage to Edward I was made to seal a peace with France. England and France had long been at war, loggerheads, and this it was a joint it was a joint marriage treaty. She was to marry Edward, and her niece Isabella of France, the daughter of Philip IV of France, was to marry Edward's son, the future Edward II. Marguerite was twenty; Edward I was sixty. He was a widower. He'd been a widower for nine years after an astoundingly successful and happy marriage to Eleanor of Castile, who bore him 16 children. And he was plunged into mourning when she died. He said, my harp is turned to mourning. I loved her in life. I cannot cease to love her in death. So he had this gap of nine years, but then he was clearly taken with his new bride and she was with him because when he died, um, just eight years later, she said, when Edward died, all men died to me. So he was, and he, he could be quite terrible, as she wrote herself, to the sons of pride, but he was gentle and he was kind to those who were, you know, like herself, who were dutiful and loving. Could we say it was a happy marriage? Was it one that was prosperous for them both? It was a happy marriage. Um, it was a marriage lived on the move because this is the time Webb was trying to conquer Scotland. And for about a half of that, the time they were married, he was on campaign. And she travelled with him. She didn't always go as far as Scotland. You know, she stayed in safe places. But she was very close to him and they bought, they had three children. Um, two sons who grew up and a daughter who died at the age of about five. 
and and Marguerite was was a true helpmeet to him. She was quite extravagant. A lot of queens were. So they found it very hard to live within their means. But he gave her he gave her wonderful gifts. She didn't interfere in politics. Not until the reign of his son Edward II, when she had a personal reason to interfere in politics, and she uh, she played the traditional role of the good queen, and he loved her for it. This is one thing that I think you mention in your book. You say that she was more politically savvy than maybe previously people have made out to be. Yeah, that um, that we're moving on later. We're moving on to the reign of Edward II. Edward II um, it came to the throne in 1307 and was seemed to have every promise, but he had a male favourite, Piers Gaveston. A lot of debate about the nature of this relationship. But what really got to the barons was that they considered themselves, by virtue of birth, their birth, you know, that they were the king's natural counsellors. This is a military aristocracy. And here comes this Gascon, Piers Gaveston, whom Edward I has ex because he doesn't like his influence on his son. And as soon as Edward becomes king, he invites Piers Gaveston back to England and gives him the royal earldom of Cornwall, which has been promised to Edward I, intended for one of his sons by Marguerite. So you can imagine how Marguerite felt about this. The English aristocracy loathed Piers Gaveston, really resented him. And from the first, did nothing but try to get him exiled. They succeeded, then he came back, and it was it, it went on and on. But um, in 1308, Edward married Isabella of France, who was then 12. And this poor little queen was completely neglected by her husband for Gaveston. Of course, she was only 12 years old. And that year, Marguerite was seemingly... Marguerite disappears from the record after the royal wedding. She attends the wedding in France, and then she she does, she does disappears. And we know through a newsletter that year that she offered a staggeringly large sum towards an effort with the barons to get Gaveston kicked out of his lands in England. And the king found out. And you can imagine uh, the, the consequences for Marguerite. She lost all her influence. She'd been a good stepmother to him. She'd acted as a buffer between him and his father, but no more. He didn't want to know anymore. So she she died in obscurity. Do we see Marguerite playing that role often? That softening of her of softening of Edward's temper, almost. Yes, yeah, she did. She did. We see her playing uh, playing it in regard to his son. She intercedes for for Edward when he's prince, and she and she she brings them together. But Edward I was not an easy father. He was a, a, a terrifying king. He's being called a great and terrible king. He was. He was you know a warrior, and he was quite a martinet. And Edward, his son was completely different, like digging hedges and thatching and swimming in February. God, that was considered shocking, you know, and dealing with local, with, with traders and artisans. And everybody thought this was scandalous for a king, not kingly behaviour at all. His father did everything he could to try and mould him in his own in his own form, but it didn't work. And Marguerite acted as a buffer. But the only other time she intervened, intervened politically was this time, you know, to try and get rid of Gaveston. Do we see her... Obviously, he's saying about her being a buffer between the two Edwards, but do we see her in a family role with her own children more so than just this one instance? We, we do see her in a family role with her own children. We see her buying toys for them when they're young, and she spends quite a bit of time with them. And they were the and so we, but they they're they're they're. Edward IV, don't, Edward I, don't forget, had 16 children by Eleanor of Castile. They didn't all survive. So this younger family didn't get the limelight so much. So the records are much sparser. But it's quite clear that they were they were close to their mother, the two sons who survived. 
So we've mentioned Edward II a little bit. So this does bring us on to your next queen in your book, Isabella of France. So could you tell us a little bit about her? Obviously, she's got this nickname of the she-wolf. You suggested that it's uh, maybe not quite deserved. I mean, the name was used by Shakespeare for Margaret of Anjou, the wife of Henry VI. And in the 18th century, the poet Thomas Gray used it for Isabella, and it's been used ever since. And I don't think it's wholly deserved, um, although I can see why she gained the reputation she did. But we have to look at her her time. The first four years of her marriage to Edward, she was ignored for Gaveston. And then the barons caught, captured Gaveston and beheaded him. Edward never forgave them. But that year, Isabella bore her first son. She was growing into a beautiful woman. And suddenly, relations between the royal couple became far more harmonious. And for the next eight years, Isabella was a model queen. She was a mediator. She got reputation as a peacemaker between Edward and his barons. And she, I mean, she ticked all the boxes. And then he found another favourite, Hula Dispenser. And this man was far more vicious than Gaveston. He was, there was almost a reign of terror, and that would let him get away with it. And together they were quite rapacious. They, they were, there were a lot of injustices committed. And Dispenser clearly viewed Isabella as a rival. And by 1325, she had been deprived of her income, her French servants, um, her children. And she she was literally under house arrest. Dispenser's wife was reading all her letters, acting as, almost as a jailer. And Isabella only got out of this when the Pope suggested that she went in Edward's place to pay homage for Edward's lands in France to the King of France, to her brother. Um, Edward would like to go himself, but Dispenser was worried about what would happen if the barons got hold of him when Edward was out of the country. So Isabella was sent. And as soon as she got there, her brother was sympathetic to her cause. And then he suggested that the young Prince of Wales, Edward, her son, would like to come to France and pay homage in his father's stead. And it was a ruse to get him get him over there. And Edward II had no ch- choice but to agree. So he sent the Prince of Wales, bad move, very bad move, because once she got the heir to the throne in her control, Isabella was in a very strong position indeed. And Edward sent frantic appeals for them to go home and she refused. And then she... Um, she she joined up in Paris with an exiled English traitor, Roger Mortimer, and who'd been a, who'd been a model subject and baron until dispensers had made inroads in his land in his lands, and um, he probably became her lover. But together with other disaffected English exiles, they they raised an army and they came back to England, and Isabella swept all before her. Edward, very few people declared for Edward. They pushed him west. They chased him to the west. He was captured and then he was taken prisoner and made to abdicate. And then I've left it on a cliffhanger. <laughs> well, one of the questions while, while we're at this uh, this cliffhanger is you said mentioned that she swept all before her. Were, was she taken quite positively by the people of England at this time? Because obviously we know her with this sort of corrupted legacy. Yep, the corrupted legacy is, stems from something that most people are not aware of, and it, that happens later. 
Um, no, she she had one heart. She had one golden opinions. The king was hated. The dispensers, that's father and son, were hated. And there was so much bad misgovernment. The barons were completely, had had, had enough. And it was very easy. Many rallied to Isabella's cause. And, uh, and that's how she managed to make a success of her invasion. And Edward III was very reluctant to accept his father's crown, but he had no choice, really. He was a minor. And then Isabella and Mortimer ruled England as unofficial regents uh, during the young king's minority. And this is where things went wrong. Because in September 1327, it was given out that Edward II had died at Berkeley Castle. Uh, there was a funeral in it, Gloucester, at the Ab- Gloucester Abbey, now the cathedral, and a body was buried. Nobody made any allegations at this time. The following spring, The regents, Isabella and Mortimer, made a vastly unpopular peace with Scotland, the shameful peace. And that is what cost them their reputation, because Robert the Bruce was then king of Scots. He'd he'd been demanding protection money and leading raids over the border for years, terrorising people in the north of England, uh, because, you know, in this war for Scotland's independence. And um, the English could not countenance that they they could make peace with the Scots. But Isabella Mortimer were pragmatists, and they knew this was probably the best way forward. But thereafter, all their policies were directed to um, to, to hanging on to power. And in the wake of this, this, um, th- th- this peace and their unpopularity, the Earl of Lancaster led a rebellion. And during that rebellion, stories emerged that Edward II had been murdered. And, um, and, and this was clearly propaganda against Isabella and Mortimer because there does exist some evidence that Edward II didn't die at all, but actually escaped from Berkeley and ended up as a hermit in northern Italy. That's a very involved story. And of course, you can imagine that that's been much debated. It's controversial. But the evidence is such that you cannot just ignore it. Sounds a very intriguing story, that one. It is. It is. I know. (laughs) We'll We'll leave that one for people to investigate. I just wanted to jump in for a moment here to say that if you're interested in finding out more about the debate surrounding Edward II's murder, you can find an article delving into that in much more detail at historyextra.com. Just search for Edward II to bring that up. So this is the point that Isabella and uh, Mortimer, they're not particularly popular. This is where Edward steps up. What exactly happens here and where does... His wife, where does she come in? Uh, Philippa of Aino, um, which is part in part was was in part of modern Belgium. She was married to Edward at the time that Isabella was on the continent, raising support for her invasion. Philippa was the daughter of the Count of Aino. Edward fell in love with her while they were over there. They were young teenagers, and um, and her dowry was um, men and ships and sailors for the invasion. And she came to England after the after Edward had become king in early 1328, and they were married in York Minster in the midst of a snowstorm. The roof hadn't been completed, <laughs> and then it was a happy marriage from the start. But she was allowed no real role as queen and no money because Isabella didn't want to share the limelight. So in 1330, Edward III attained his majority. Was 18. And he led the, he, he arranged this coup 
with some loyal friends in Nottingham Castle. Um, they seized Mortimer and he was executed. Isabella was kept under house arrest for the next two years in circumstances that are not clear. And then she was released. And then she led an honourable, luxurious retirement with freedom until in the end, at the time of her death in 1358, she was seen as an elder stateswoman her reputation more or less rehabilitated in her own lifetime. Of course, her reputation over the centuries since hasn't been as good. But she was clearly at the centre of a highly unified royal family because Edward III and Philip Reveno were a, were a great, a, a very happy power couple. And they were the quintessential medieval king and queen of the age of chivalry. They had 12 children. They, they were close. They loved each other dearly. Um, Edward was a great proponent of the cult of chivalry. Philippa supported him in that. She supported him in the Hundred Years' War. And she was a great peacemaker. You hear so much about their relationship and the strength of their relationship and how, mm. like you say, they were a power couple. Do we see Philippa get involved in the more practical side of things and not rather than just the supportive role? We see her, again, showing the gentler face of monarchy, interceding with the king on at least 76 occasions, some of them for pregnant women who've been sentenced to hang for a felony. And they were spared because of her intercession. And she, um, very early on in the reign, the first example of this, uh, her intercessions occurs when um, uh, some stands at a tournament uh, collapsed under her. And the king immediately ordered that the carpenters be hanged. And she knelt before him in front of everyone. Um, only her coronet snapped. She wasn't hurt. And uh, and pleaded with him. And then he had to, you know, he, he relented. And then more famously in 1347 for the six burghers of Calais, he would have besieged Calais for a year. The citizens had offered to surrender. And he said, yes, as long as you send me six burghers with halters round their necks as if they were going to their execution. And they went bearing the keys of the town and he ordered that immediately they be beheaded. And Philippa had just arrived in his camp there. She famously knelt at his feet and begged and pleaded with him. He was in a towering rage. And he said, I wish you'd been anywhere else but here, but I can't. I, you know, I cannot deny you. And he let her have their lives. Of course, it could all have been stage managed. It could have been arranged beforehand. But it, it, it now enabled him to, to concede without loss of face. There's a, there's a lovely quote about, and I'll come to it in a minute, because um, Edward and Philippa um, were, were, no, were trendsetters. When, there was a lot of adverse comment about all the A-noters who came with her to England and all the fashions they brought with them. And there were lots of complaints from monastic chroniclers that the old wide clothes, you know, loose clothing, you know, was, you know wasn't being adopted and used anymore. And every week there was some new frippery, some new fashion and that. And one chronicler <laughs> wrote... Blessed be the memory of King Edward and Queen Philippa, who first invented clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic and quote. That, in fact, they were so they were so extravagant in their clothing that many people tried to copy them, and that's why sumptuary laws were brought in to restrict the wearing of certain materials to the upper classes of society. So, they were medieval trendsetters. Yep, they were medieval trendsetters. And also the sumptuary laws would insist that they used English wool, you know, English cloth, rather than imported cloth to boost trade. On the note of trade, I think Philip had some influence in this as well. 
Philippa had the great influence. She, she encouraged the settlements of Flemish weavers, particularly in the eastern counties, and went to visit them. And uh, she was very popular in Norwich, for example. And uh, she also, um, in, in the Midlands, she patronised coal mining at that place. She, you know, she encouraged it to, the mines to be reopened. And uh, she, you know, and she was much loved for that. She clearly had a great love for England, even though she was a foreigner. And foreign queens weren't always popular. But Philippa was. And even though she was extravagant and she was always in debt, and Edward at one point had to take her household under his wing because, you know, he, she just couldn't afford to maintain it. She couldn't make ends meet. And it wasn't all her fault. But he did he did set the trend for a fabulous lifestyle and his court was one of the most cultivated and sophisticated in Christendom. And she reveled in this. They, together they created this wonderful chivalric court, uh, but it had to be paid for. But what, what's, what shines out in this reign is the unity within the royal family. They had seven sons and five daughters. And most of the sons grew to adulthood. The eldest was the famous Black Prince, another was John of Gaunt. And... But this family was unified. They were all close to each other and affectionate to and loyal to each other. It wasn't like there was it wasn't jealousies or you know difficulties between the father and the sons, and that is probably due to Philippa's unifying influence, and and probably Edward too. But Edward also bound his sons to him and to the nobility by marrying them to noble heiresses, and that meant identifying the royal family with the interests of the barons. And that 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 preempted a lot of jealousies on the part of the barons. Must have made them very popular as well. It did. They were very popular. And when Philippa had died, there were outpourings of grief, such as on a, on a par with what you would what you have seen for the late Queen or for Princess Diana. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And then. Everything goes quiet. We got the, we're back to fragments. While she's the mother of the young king, we see her. But what's going on behind the scenes at this time? What's going on with this relationship with Owen Tudor? And when were all these children born? And how many children actually were there? I'd like to talk a little bit about the next queen as well, Anne of Bohemia, who's the first queen of Richard II. You describe her in your book as quite a cosmopolitan queen. Can you tell us a little bit what you mean by that? Yes, she was. She's been called the embodiment of, 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 of cosmopolitan court culture because she came from the court of Prague. Bohemia, of course, was modern Czech Republic. And she was the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles IV. And she came from a highly cultivated court. And her father had known, you know, patronised Dante and Petrarch. And she was she was incredibly well-educated, one of our best educated queens. She introduced into England um, influence, uh, influences from Czech art and sculpture. And also, possibly, there was a link there to Lollardy. Now, I don't know if you've heard of John Wycliffe, who's been called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He was under the protection of John of Gaunt. He was a cleric who argued for reform of the church and the translation of the Bible into English. And Wycliffe, as you can imagine, in this... This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This age was very, very controversial. And he was put on trial, uh, but he was he escaped the stake because there were no there were no such heresy laws in England at that time. But once he once he denied transubstantiation, the miracle of the mass, then he put himself a bit beyond the pale of the establishment. Now his followers were called Lollards, and Anna Bohemia had eight Lollards named as executors in her will. She read the Bible in English. She spoke several languages. She learned enough English to read the read the scriptures in it. And she did it openly, and she sent them to the very conservative Archbishop of Canterbury to have them verified and checked. And he was quite full of praise for her. But one wonder, she said she interceded for Lollards who'd been condemned to death. She's um and she so there, there is a hint that you know she perhaps leaned that way herself, although outwardly she was devout in many, you know, traditionally orthodox in many ways. Did this controversy around Wycliffe uh, tint her life any any further than that? Did do we actually see it having a direct impact, or is it just that? Well, it's just that, yes. And Wycliffe himself said that you know she shouldn't be hereticized for for you know for reading the Bible in English. Um, obviously, he would say that. Uh, but but I mean, Richard II was 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 orthodox. He wouldn't have had any truck with Lollardy. So if Anne did have sympathies that way, maybe it was just from a humanitarian point of view. So what about Anne's relationship with Richard? Was it a strong one? They adored each other. They married as 15-year-olds and Richard was just besotted with her. And when he wrote to his mother-in-law, he addressed her as mother of our beloved. And uh, I know it's it's very touching. He he just thought the world of her. And she was, um, you know, she and, and she did of him. That they were they were absolutely devoted. She too gained a reputation as a peacemaker, as a mediator, and uh, famously interceded on behalf of the citizens of London. Richard was a very mercurial, volatile personality. He'd been become king at the age of ten, and had a, a rather exaggerated sense of his own grandeur. He elevated English court life to a new level. And he he hated fighting, hated wars. That made him unpopular with his barons because they all liked fighting, especially the French. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to, you know, he he wanted to rule autonomously at home without the burdens of war, a war that really could not be won, the Hundred Years' War. But he alienated so many of his barons because he too had favourites. Robert de Vere, Earl of Oxford, were one of his favourites. And there's been a lot of debate about the nature of Richard's relationship with Anne, whether it was deliberately a chaste one and he really fancied Robert de Vere, or whether he was just great close friends with Robert de Vere. But a letter recently discovered, written by Anne, shows that the couple desperately wanted children. So it's very unlikely that this was a union that was chased by choice. And they they clearly adored each other. And when Anne died at the age of 28 in 1394, he was devastated, absolutely devastated. Even a year later, he was described as being crazed or completely distracted and disordered. And he ordered the buildings of the palace where she died to be razed to the ground. All sources bear testimony to this terrible grief he suffered. And this is a man who's getting a, who very soon afterwards gains a reputation for being a bit of a megalomaniac and wanting to be an absolute monarch, very autocratic and quite frightening, actually, in some respects. And he went completely off the rails and he was deposed in 1399. But that was just over two years um, after 
he had taken a second wife and he married Isabella Valois, the daughter of the King of France, in November 1396 when she was not seven years old. And the reason why he married her was to secure a peace with France. As you can imagine, this peace wasn't popular in England. They wanted victories like Edward III had won. And they and they didn't want a child queen. They needed the succession because Richard and Anne had had no children and there was no clear heir to the king. A king, an heir was a distant cousin, you know, the Earl of March. Uh, nobody had heard of the Earl of March, you know, and they wanted an heir of the king's body. And Richard's saying, oh, time will, time will sort the problem out. You know, she'll, she'll, you know, she'll grow older and I'm young enough to wait for her. And everybody's thinking, hang on, you're 30. <laughs> you, know, you know, you can't, in, in those days, 30 is getting middle-aged. So there may have been a psychological reason why he wanted to marry a child. And this was a very, if I say a happy marriage, it's really more like a, an uncle-niece relationship because Isabella is sent to Windsor to, to complete her education. He's very indulgent towards her. She adores him quite clearly. And when he goes to Ireland to fight in 1399 um, and he lifts her up and kisses her 10 times and, you know, says goodbye to her, she's devastated, you know, ill with grief, we are told. And then the next thing she hears, of course, is that he's been deposed and he's been he's been imprisoned. And early in 1400, he, starved, he probably starved to death in, in Pontefract Castle. And Isabella only finds this out for a little while later. And, I mean, by this time, she loads his, the, the usurping king, Henry IV, John of Gaunt's son of the House of Lancaster. And um, she, she, she won't have anything to do with him. And she even gets involved in a rebellion against him, young as she is, and issues a proclamation in Richard's favour and marches with rebels who want to restore Richard to Sirencester, all the way to Sirencester, where unfortunately they all get lynched by the mob. And the mayor informs the king she's there and she's, she's, she's put under house arrest. She's very young. And then he, he's, he proposes that she marries his son, the future Henry V. She won't have anything to do with the House of Lancaster. And uh, and she goes back to, she, eventually she's sent back to her father at great expense and uh, goes back to France, um, lowering at the king and, and, and really, really sulking when she goes to say farewell to him and we won't speak to him. And and she marries the Duke of Orléans, Charles Duke of Orléans, who's the, the poet duke, who wrote beautiful verses, calling her the fairest thing to mortal eyes. She died at 15 in childbirth. It's tragic. It's two marriages, you know, before you're 15 and a child and then your life's over. It's just terrible. It's a really tragic story. And quite a feisty young lady who, we, who we're told when she was a child knew how to play the queen. <laughs> your little madam, I think. A quite fiery one. <laughs> I think so too, yes. And if she'd lived, what would she have been like? And interestingly, her younger sister, Catherine, was the Catherine who married Henry V. So I've got a few other questions I'd really like to ask you. There's these five women who've led extraordinary lives. Do they in any way, would you say, share common troubles or triumphs? They're all foreign and they all have to overcome the hump of coming into England. The English are very xenophobic by this stage. They're I mean, very nationalistic by this stage of their history. And they don't like foreigners or strangers, as they call them. So they all have to tread that difficult path between being loyalty and thinking also that, that, you know, that their home country expects them to promote its interests. And they have to sort of, it's a fine dividing line. They all have to do that. Some do it more successfully than others. Um, but Anna 
Bohemia is suffered the, the most in this respect. But even Philippa's A noters were criticised for their dress and because there were too many, there were too many of them. And Isabella of France, I mean, she was a child, and all her most of her French attendants were sent home, which was probably the best solution. They all had to do that. They all had to live within their means, or to try to, and they weren't very successful at it. Um, Isabella, I mean, appropriated so many funds for herself when she was ruling as regent. It, you know, it's, it, it was obscene, actually. <laughs> you can see why they were unpopular. How much of it was in keeping popular with not just the king and his barons, but actually with the people as well? It's very important to have the to win the love of the people because with the people, if you need if you've got a rebellion against you, the people are going to rise for you, you know. And look what happened with Edward II when the people didn't rise for him but came rushing to his wife to support her. So you do need the, the you know queens. Most queens in this period deliberately courted the love of the people, um, with varying degrees of success. Uh, Marguerite was popular. Elizabeth Isabella was for a long time, and Philippa definitely. Anne of Bohemia gained popularity and Isabella really doesn't make much impact because she's not really visible. What what do you think we could take from these women's lives? I, I would say that this is it's, it's an age that viewed massive changes and dramatic events like the Baron, that that like like an you know, invasion of England, the Hundred Years' War, the Black Death, the Peasants' Revolt. Um, but these queens were in some way passionately involved in most of those events, and they can help to give us new information you know, to illuminate these events for us and to humanise them in some ways. So what about you then? If you were to say to meet one of these queens, would there be a particular queen that you would want to maybe meet or have a conversation with? Or Yes, I'd like to speak to Isabella and I'd like to say, what did you actually know about your husband's fate? Because for a long time... And a lot of historians would, would have said in the past, and, and other writers have said in the past, that Isabella, they've accused her of being responsible for the death of her husband and that she gave the order for the murder. If Edward II was murdered or assassinated, she couldn't have done that because when Roger Mortimer um, found out that there'd been a plot to free Edward and undoubtedly gave a, an order for him to be taken out... Um, Isabella was just too far away geographically. She couldn't have known about that in the timescale available. But unless, of course, they had agreed beforehand that this is what would happen if there was another escape attempt, there'd already been at least one. But we don't know that. And no chronicler, strictly contemporary chronicler, accused Isabella of the deed. Only one, Geoffrey de Baker, writing in the 1350s, and more than 20 years later, and it's such a fictional account, it's so sensationalist and can demonstrably be proved wrong, you couldn't give it much credence. You know, nobody seriously accused her of the murder of Edward II, and one wonders if this was because he wasn't murdered, but we don't know. We just don't know. It's that solving a historical mystery. Well, we've got compelling. There is a letter, a letter called the Fieschi letter, uh, written by a notary called Manuel Fieschi, who was a distant connection of the British royal, the English royal family. And it was sent to Edward III in, probably in 1336. And it was an account of a, the confession of Edward II, how he'd escaped from Barclay Castle, killed a porter in the process, um, hidden out in England, and travelled around the continent, even gone to visit the Pope. And then he settled in a hermitage, became a hermit in Lombardy in northern Italy. There is a tradition in Lombardy that an English king was buried there, but it's an oral tradition and it can only be traced back to the 19th century. But 
there are other pointers too. There was a pretender to the throne, William Le Galley, William of Wales. Don't forget Edward of Carnarvon had been William, had been Prince of Wales and born in Wales. And he was brought to Edward III's court, uh, when he was camp rather, when he was in, you know, raising money for the Hundred Years' War in the 1330s. And royal pretenders were usually hanged. This one wasn't. This but this one was kept with them for several weeks, um, an honoured guest, and a lot of money was outlaid on his keep. He was conveyed by somebody who came from Lombardy, and then he disappears from the record. He was allowed to return. Who was he? Was he Edmund II? It could be an interesting one to be able to go and find out from Isabella and try and at least connect the dots enough to be able to establish a picture. What did she know? Why did she want... The thing was, the body, the body at Berkeley Castle... The face was covered with sear cloth. The body was seared. That's like wax, wax linen strips, you know, and that. And then it was displayed on public view so people could come and identify it. Hello, the face is covered. How do you know this is Edward II? And she asked for the woman who'd embalmed the body. And she asked for her to come and see her in private. She paid for someone to escort her. Why did she want that? Did she have suspicions that Mortimer had, that there had been foul play or that it wasn't Edward or... Was she concerned that um, anyone had noticed that he'd been murdered? We don't know. I guess this is one of the joys of for you going back and writing these bits of the story, bits of the history. What challenges did you face in putting back together these women's lives? There are always problems with writing the lives of medieval women because you are dealing essentially in fragments. In the case of queens, lots of fragments, but there are undocumented periods and parts different and parts of their lives for which there is no evidence and so you're make, sometimes making a leap from one episode to another with nothing in between and you have to you know, you've got to be careful what you infer from the sources and what what you and what you speculate so this is this is always the problem with writing about medieval queens and this is my third volume in the series it's getting easier as we get we get sort of later on in history the first volume was very fragmentary the evidence was very fragmentary for the norman queens but it's um no, the sources are much better for the 15th century, the next book. They're excellent. Um, so, you know, that was the one that was the one um, um one one of the problems. Another is you have to be careful. I don't think you should look at them from post-feminist viewpoint. I think you have to look at them in the context of their own time and how they would have felt about things, how they would have seen their world and themselves. Uh, you can't impose modern values on medieval people. So that's a pitfall for a writer. And sometimes, you know, you can tell immediately someone's writing from a rather different viewpoint and it just doesn't fit with the zeitgeist of the period. So you mentioned that this is book three. You've written two other books previously as part of this England's Medieval Queen series. I believe there's a book four. Is there anyone you're particularly looking forward to writing about in that book? Yes, Catherine of Valois, who I mentioned earlier, the younger sister of Isabella of Valois. She was the wife of Henry V for a couple of years, basically, because he died young. And um, I've, I've, there's a lot I want to say about her. I want to examine the circumstances of her, her relationship possible marriage to Owen Tudor there isn't he was meant to be the master of her wardrobe and he was they were of course the parents of Edmund Tudor the father of Henry VII they're the ancestors of the Tudors and so but I'm, I'm very interested in her life and her life after her marriage to Henry V it's it's brilliantly documented we got a lot about her marriage you know and then and then 
everything goes quiet. We got the, we're back to fragments. While she's the mother of the young king, we see her. But what's going on behind the scenes at this time? What's going on with this relationship with Owen Tudor? And when were all these children born? And how many children actually were there? And why would she? Why did she retire to Bermondsey Abbey where she died in 1437? We don't know. So I'm I'm really interested in exploring her life further. I've I've done quite a lot on the other queens in my books on the Wars of the Roses and the Princes in the Tower, but I'm going to revisit them anyway. And then, of course, Joan of Joan of Navarre is Henry the Fourth's queen. She's the first queen in the book, and uh, and and there's been a fantastic biography, an academic biography by Ellie Wood, Ellie Woodacre, and that's not long come out. And but I'm, I've got I've got a lot of research myself. The reason I'm doing this project, this huge project, is in the 1970s when I was about three years old. I um I, I did a huge amount of research on England's medieval queens, and ever since then I've wanted to write it up. And it's taken me all these years, and they give me four books to do it in. So it's fantastic. So I do have a lot of research myself. But going back to the problems is. I'm writing for uh, people who want to know a lot about history, and it's more a commercial market than an academic market. A lot of the academic work I did has just been torn up, basically. A lot of it has gone. I've kept the very interesting bits, which inform the story and give me more, enable me to write more authoritatively. But um, loads of entries and charter roles and patent roles and things like that have gone. I get very excited about silly things like that. But then I realised I wanted, I had loads of details on ladies in waiting, trying to piece their lives together through the, in, through accounts. And, and, and I was told, we don't need to name the ladies in waiting. And I'm thinking, oh, I'd like to, you know, it's hard to let go of that. But I do understand the wisdom behind it because we want, it's a good narrative. There's so much to get into a book. You cannot, you haven't got space for that kind of detail. So if it's not there, it's not for the want of hoping it would be, but because I did have it, but, you know, it's just, it doesn't work for this particular series of books. It's got to be readable. It's got to be readable. You've got to want people to keep turning the pages. And that's true. And these are great stories. History's full of great stories. And I've always been saying that. And that's when you get these epithets, popular historian. But popular historians use the same sources as academic historians. It's the way the material's presented. And that, that's different. That was Alison Weir. Her book, Queens of the Age of Chivalry, is out now, published by Vintage. And if you're interested in finding out more about the murder of Edward II, as I mentioned, you can find an article where historians debate whether or not the king might have survived on our website, historyextra.com. Just search for Edward II on historyextra.com to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.